0: Welcome to your New Mexico government. I'm your host, Khalil E. You ever take a Facebook quiz? You ever wonder where that info goes? Or who's keeping track of your location through your phone? is your last selfie being used in facial recognition software. In today's episode, we talk data mining, racially biased tech and surveillance. Plus, we're finding out what all that means for Black Lives Matter protests, government monitoring during COVID, and let's not forget the coming election. I talk with an expert on race and technology, a professor of computer science, a local artist, activist, and a leading data rights advocate. Log off and listen up as we have an important show for you. Up next, executive producer Marisa DeMarco has a news update of what we know today, Friday, June 12th, as of 5 p.m.
1: The United States is seeing a rise in coronavirus infections this week, experts are warning, and six states, including our neighbors, Arizona and Texas, are seeing more patients filling hospital beds, according to Al Jazeera. The CDC is urging organizers of large gatherings like protests or a presidential campaign rally to strongly encourage people to use masks and cloth face coverings, the Washington Post reports, though the Republican National Committee said it doesn't want to require masks. In New Mexico, the special legislative session begins next week, and as things stand, the public and lobbyists won't be able to be there in person. A bipartisan group of 22 legislators filed a petition yesterday to make the session open to the public, citing the state's constitution, the Albuquerque Journal reports. Officials announced 162 new cases in the state, according to the Santa Fe Reporter, bringing the total to 9,526. That includes 13 more cases at the Otero County prison, which has 275 known cases today. There are six more deaths reported also. The death toll stands at 426 in New Mexico. The police union in Albuquerque says the calls to defund police are infuriating, KOAT reports, and that reform means additional training, which would require more money. For your New Mexico government, I'm Marisa DeMarco.
0: All right. So I'm with executive producer Marisa DeMarco. Marisa, how are you?
1: I'm doing all right, Kalia. How you doing?
0: I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So today we're talking about social media, big data. Mm COVID-19, Black Lives Matter and the election and it's something interesting because one of our guests David Carroll, I spoke to and he was one of the main subjects of the documentary The Great Hack, which I saw over the weekend and I say this, as soon Mm. as I got finished watching this documentary I logged out of Facebook
1: Why is that?
0: Well, from what they exposed in the data mining that happens, and Facebook is one of the prevailing data miners, or at least allowing people to data mine on their platform, I just didn't like it. It felt, it was very ominous. It was incredibly creepy. Knowing that, you know, social media is a means of connection for people and to let people know what you're up to, i.e. the promotion of this show in itself, I decided Mm -hmm. that, you know, for my mental health, And for just my greater awareness, I decided to log out. I will log in to post something about the show and log out because it's just something that I don't feel like I can trust at all.
1: Sure. I mean, I think we're so used to thinking about um, social media as being divisive because of things like You select your own friends, therefore you're in kind of a bubble of people who agree with you. It's called confirmation bias, right? Mm -hmm. So we think of it as our fault that we end up in such divided conversations. But actually what I think from listening to a lot of our guests today is that these are intentionally sown divisions whether it's by data extraction and then targeting, or whether it's by these really sophisticated bot campaigns, which is not to say that there aren't issues that we all really strongly disagree on or are really divided on, but a lot of misinformation is going out there and it's reinforcing fears in an intentional way, Mm -hmm. you know?
0: You know, it's caused a a higher level of scrutiny. Mm -hmm. I think that with the ease that social media has given us, we have forfeited voluntarily our options to scrutinize and to really critically look at what we're using and how it affects us.
1: So I, in the past, years ago, was targeted by some people who were angry about some coverage I did and it got ugly. And so I got really, really careful about friend requests and posting online and developed some level of security awareness and best practices. But then during the pandemic, I was just feeling like, You know, I just need to get information out as far as I can get it out. One of the main ways that people look at news, at real news, is through social media. So I feel like I have to engage on Facebook, on Twitter, on, you know, whatever platform, just to try to reach as many people as we can with urgent pandemic information. Now also really trying to see the Black Lives Matter movement in full dimensionality. You know, personally, I would probably not be on them at all.
0: It's a lot for us to unpack. The episode is going to get started now. Enjoy, everyone. I am on the line with David Carroll. He took on Cambridge Analytica, the political consulting firm that was exposed in the data mining scandal detailed in the Netflix documentary, The Great Hack. Carroll is an advocate for data rights and an associate professor for media design at Parsons in New York. David, thanks for being on the show.
2: Oh, great to be here. Thanks, Khalil.
0: We're in the new age with COVID-19 pandemic. While states are in the process of reopening, many people are still at home tethered to their phones. Talk to me about data rights or the lack thereof.
2: Well, I think the big lesson that I learned doing the research out of the 2016 election was that we have not given ourselves equal data rights as our allies and friends across the Atlantic Ocean. Europeans have a fundamental right to their own data and a fundamental right to have it protected. So we're still you know, going into a increasingly dystopian future without any basic protections. Hmm. Nothing has really changed regarding our elections, but now we're also dealing with the way that data can be used as a pandemic response. Mm-hmm. And then the way that data is being used to respond to the demonstrations and civil unrest. So we have three simultaneous sort of data privacy crises going on at once, the continued election issues, now pandemic, and then our right to freedom of speech and freedom of assembly to protest in public according to the First Amendment.
0: In regards to like the Black Lives Matter movement and COVID-19, how does the process of data mining on social media, how does that affect what type of information users are exposed to?
2: With regards to the way that our data is being collected to measure our response to COVID-19, our physical locations are being reported to third parties that are then used to figure out, you know, are people adhering to stay-at-home orders, are, how is our physical behavior moving around showing how we are in different states are responding. So people don't have a clear sense that, you know, when you decide to break a guideline from a state, that that's going to be represented in the aggregate data. Mm. But then on top of this, people don't realize that bringing their phone to a protest exposes their information to law enforcement who are monitoring these activities. So the sort of defensive measures that protesters would have to take on their own personal phones to protect their identity from an overzealous police action are really significant. So huge amounts of education are required. And then on top of all of this, the same algorithms are continuing to radicalize people by moving them towards even more extreme content, And the way that you know, misinformation and disinformation travels farther and faster than the truth. So we're still in a very sort of toxic information space. Mm-hmm. And the stakes are just getting higher and higher, not lower.
0: That's, that's really scary. And You know, targeted ad campaigns, how do these corporate entities and political campaigns, how do they use this data against this? How do they weaponize our personal information? And also, can anything be done to stop this?
2: You know, it's routine for political campaigns, both official campaigns and super PACs to collect our personal information and then target us as individuals on Facebook. So, for example, once a campaign gets a hold of the voter files, they can build voter profiles and models and then upload lists of voters into Facebook. And so you're getting targeted as an individual voter in very small groups this is called micro targeting Mm -hmm. this is a an issue because facebook as a policy says we don't want to censor or fact check or limit what politicians can say in their ads we expect sort of civil society to do the work of fact checking them and voters ultimately decide but that is against the process of micro targeting where only tiny groups of people are even seeing the ads so it's quite difficult to hold these campaigns up to a magnifying glass and scrutinize them when still only tiny groups of people are seeing specific ads and we don't understand fully how the ads are being targeted so you know, official misinformation is being spread. And there's only been one instance where Facebook has taken down a political ad from the Trump campaign, for example, and that was when reporters noticed that there was misinformation being distributed by the campaign around the census. Hmm. And the census is one issue that Facebook will sort of stand firm on. So direct voter elections operations misinformation they'll take a stand against, and census misinformation they'll take a stand against. So we've only seen one instance of that. So the sort of parameters of acting are very narrow.
0: now. What do you make of Facebook's decision not to flag political ads that espouse false information and untruth?
2: I think it's a political decision that the company is making. Mm. That there's no neutral decision that can be made in these issues. It's reflective of the general response people are having to, you know, the second or third round of Black Lives Matter protests that silence is a stance you can't yeah. not take a stance. And so Facebook saying that they want to remain neutral is a non-neutral position. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of pressure that's building up within the company. Employees are becoming upset. Advertisers are becoming upset. The nonprofit groups that the company tends to fund are rejecting money. Mm-hmm. The scientists who work for the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, you know, have written letters. So. People are upset with the position that Facebook has taken, and it's frustrating that Facebook asserts that it is not taking a position, Mm -hmm. when I think it definitely is taking a position. And it contrasts with the position of Twitter, which Twitter has said it will place a notification on a politician's false information as a kind of warning label. And to me, that's the sort of absolute minimum that a company could do is put a warning label on a dangerous product. But that caused such consternation by the president that a warning label would be put on his tweets. Ironically, when another account just posts the president's tweets word for word, it gets suspended. So it even shows Twitter's unique stance that allows politicians to do things that other users are not allowed to do.
0: It just kind of feels like they're all in bed together when we see these type of things playing out. And I got questions about accountability. I mean, Facebook appears to be the central player in the processing of people's data, yet they faced few consequences for their actions. Does this mean that we'll see the events of the 2016 election play out again in November?
2: Not much has changed since 2016. Uh, so we don't have a lot of sort of tools to predict that things will be different. Mm. So we do need to prepare for more of the same. There's more general awareness amongst the population. Mm -hmm. And one thing to keep in mind in the big picture is we came out of the 2016 election thinking that voter data was the secret to winning elections. But then the primaries happened, and the Biden campaign was extremely successful, and you know was able to win the primaries quite easily by not doing sophisticated voter targeting work. And Mike Bloomberg ran and spent more money than anyone had ever spent and had the most sophisticated technology campaign, and basically only won American Samoa. Mm-hmm. So interestingly, I saw today from Oxios that Bloomberg's analytics company called Hawkfish, will not be hired by the Biden campaign. Mm. So we are also seeing that this sort of idea that data and voter targeting is the key to winning is being second guessed if you just look at the Biden campaign success, it has not been because they have a world class voter operation. The sort of conventional wisdom is always turned upside down with each election. So on one hand, we can say things are not going to be that different from 2016. But on the other hand, the conventional wisdom has been turned on its head yet again.
0: Yeah. We've got TikTok. It's the new kid on the social media block. It's like the new hotness. And the platform is proving to be vital to the Black Lives Matter movement. But it's run by a foreign company in China. Should we be cautious of similar privacy violations with TikTok?
2: Yes, I've been concerned about TikTok because when I learned that the key issue with the Cambridge Analytica scandal was that learning that where our data is processed, are these companies foreign or domestic, unfortunately does matter in terms of our rights and the conduct of the companies. Hmm. So TikTok is a product based on a company called ByteDance. That's a Beijing based company. And the company has made efforts to make its operations distinct, meaning the data is served on different servers in different places. Hmm. But the engineers still work on the same product. And so they've made some more efforts to try and separate the engineers. But until they spin off TikTok as a independent company that is solely based in the United States and is you know, solely independent and is fully under the jurisdiction of the United States and no other governments, mm-hmm. it's hard to be comfortable with the increasing reliance on this platform for social criticism and protest and so on, because um, although the company wants to appear like it's independent, it technically is not.
0: Mm. I mean, how can people protect their data? Is it impossible for us at this point?
2: It's not impossible, but it's made too difficult. And it's not fair. And no one should feel guilty that they are not able to quit Facebook and Instagram, even though they might want to, or that they try to protect their data. And it's just too difficult. The industry has made it too difficult for us. It's an asymmetric, unfair system. And so I hope that when we defeat the virus and the pandemic ends and we're in a new political situation, that we can resume the work of just giving Americans equal rights to Europeans. Mm -hmm. And we should have the same data rights and protections If we achieve that, it will make the job of protecting our data a lot easier than it is. So there are things we can do, and you can definitely stem the tide of data flooding all over the place. Mm -hmm. But it's really not possible to fully go off the grid. So you have to uh, understand that there are limitations to what we can do, but it's really about learning self-defense. Think about it as like. You would take a jujitsu or a karate class to be you know, able to do self-defense. Being self-defensive online is a lot of work and you need to be committed to it in a similar way. It takes discipline and practice, just yeah. like everything else. Yeah. It should be easier and hopefully someday we'll make it easier.
0: Okay. So in your opinion, is privacy like a thing of the past?
2: It is under threat and will continue to be under threat. Hmm. and it is worth fighting for to protect it. All right,
0: finally, you know what words do you have for listeners who are now, I'm sure, very worried about their personal data and trying to figure out what to do next?
2: Well, if you are concerned about these things, it pays to dig into the settings of the services and applications that you use and to find the settings that give you some privacy protections to opt out of targeted ads, to opt out of your data being shared, to opt out of your data being sold, The industry makes us do the work, so even if doing a little work, that can give you a little peace of mind, but stay vigilant. And probably the most important thing, when the time comes, again, to write to your lawmakers and say, you support new privacy protection legislation that is being considered in many states and in Washington, D.C. So sometimes the best thing to do to protect our privacy is just to do to some democracy.
0: All right. I want to thank you very much again for taking time out of your Friday morning to speak with us. He's David Carroll. He is an advocate for data rights. Thanks again, David.
2: Thanks a lot. Bye.
0: This is Your NM Government. I'm your host, Khalil Koloda. We're covering life during the pandemic and how what's happening affects us all differently. Tune in Wednesday through Friday at 7 p.m. here on KUNM or find every episode anywhere you get your podcasts. Are you wary of social media? Do you stress privacy when you're online? We want to hear about it. Call up our hotline, leave a message, and we'll interview you. Call 505-218-7084 or email yournmgov at gmail.com. My next guest is Mutale Ngonde. She is the CEO for AI for the people and a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard University and the Digital Society Lab at Stanford University. Mutale, thank you so much for being with me tonight.
3: No problem, no problem.
0: You know, you work in tech and understanding technology, but also in race relations. And here we are, we're uprising and people are taking to the streets. How is facial recognition software used by police in demonstrations?
3: So facial recognition software is typically used in one of three ways by police forces. It can either be installed in body camera Hmm. so that when they're on the beat or if they're in a violent situation or even a non-violent situation, which most of the protests were, or it could be used once a crime has been committed Mm. There are databases. The FBI has the largest law enforcement database in the U.S. They may have a picture of the suspect, and then they will compare that picture with the faces that they have. And then the final way, and this is a much more egregious way, that we've seen facial recognition being used by police forces, at the NYPD, There was an investigation by Georgetown Law last year that found out that they were using facial recognition database to try and identify potential suspects who had committed crimes that were similar to the one that they were investigating, Hmm. which really has constitutional implications because that's a warrantless search, but you're also potentially victimizing an innocent person Mm -hmm. if you're using existing criminal behavior to predict future criminal behavior. And I think the reason that it's become such a big deal this week is... The police reform bill that was introduced to the House on Monday included a clause that said that they wanted to ban the use of facial recognition and body cam data, which is, as you said, we're making news minute by minute, day by day, but that was massive news.
0: Now tell me a little bit more about the dangers of all of this. How are we and our privacy endangered by the use of this technology?
3: most people will say well you know i'm not going to interact with the police i'm a law-abiding citizen it won't happen to me unfortunately george floyd is an example of somebody who did come into contact with the police he was suspected of committing a crime but there's nothing to say that that actually happened Mm -hmm. but it's actually much more innocuous so for example if you're somebody that has a ring doorbell which are one of the what are called a suite of smart ring bells, where Somebody comes to your door and you get a text message with a picture of the person at your door. Yes. That's being enabled by facial recognition technology. If you go to self checkout and as you're checking out your toothpaste, the screen in front of you is enabled by facial recognition and technology to make sure that you don't steal merchandise. I am on the way to becoming a new American, I'm very excited. But one Mm. of the things that I had to do was go through a facial recognition scan as part of my application process. And if you go through any airports, certainly with international travel coming into JFK here in New York, every single person coming into this country has to do a face scan as part of the immigration process at that point, too. Mm -hmm. So facial recognition technology is extremely innocuous. We have folks here in New York trying to replace keys with facial recognition pads. So you Mm. just look into the key. And then, of course, people that have iPhones know that they can open their phones by looking at the screen, and that's because if there is a facial recognition technology that has been built into the operating system.
0: What responsibilities do tech companies have as they consider, you know, how their surveillance technologies are used by law enforcement or other actors?
3: Up until, I want to say three days ago, tech companies were not taking any responsibility because what was happening from the advocacy standpoint were this innocuous, Facial technology is a violation of our privacy Mm
4: -hmm. and
3: that's why you saw the ucla in northern california work with local activists there to ban use of that technology in the city of san francisco Mm -hmm. now what's really interesting about san francisco is that that is where silicon valley is So, the people creating these technologies and who have the deepest understanding of these technologies also realized how invasive they were Mm. and did not want them to be used. And so the issues are really a few. You have the issue of warrantless search, which is Fourth Amendment right. You also have the issue of privacy encoded within our Constitution is the idea that we can live without surveillance of the state. And then in cases of facial recognition, specifically, there is the high probability of wrongful arrest if you're black, hmm. because the data sets that train these technologies are trained typically on white faces, okay, and so they don't even have the capability to distinguish one black face from the other. I mean, a horrible, horrible racist joke is the idea that all black people look alike, but unfortunately, because of the way these technologies are trained, that is literally the case for many, many of these systems, including IBM system, Amazon system, and Microsoft system, Mm -hmm. all of which were part of an audit that was conducted by Joe Bilawani out of MIT.
0: That's funny because this week, all three of those entities that you just mentioned, IBM, Amazon, and Microsoft, have gone on to... IBM says that they will no no longer sell their facial recognition technology to the law enforcement. Microsoft puts a ban on law enforcement from using it, and Amazon had just announced on Wednesday that there is a one-year moratorium. But you mentioned something that I want to talk about. How does race play into technology. Are racial stereotypes and stigmas being encoded into the technology of tomorrow?
3: Yes. And the reason that they're called machine learning technologies is the way that they're able to conduct these human-like processes, whether it's seeing in the face of facial recognition or recognizing natural language processing in the case of Siri, which is another biometric technology that, that many of us use, the way that they are trained to be able to recognize humans is through data sets. And what's happened with facial recognition, as an example, is when they're being trained to see a face, they're fed a large number of pictures. For the sake of this conversation, I'm going to say a million. Mm-hmm. So if you have 950,000 sets of faces in your data set and all of them are variations of white men, the system is gonna do a number of different things. It's gonna assume all faces are white. Mm -hmm. It's gonna assume that eyes are within a certain range of circumference. If you're somebody of Asian descent, you may not be recognized because the circumference of your eyes are different. One of the things when it comes to misgendering, particularly black women, is the idea that all women have both shoulders, mm. But if you're somebody with an Afro, with a crew cap with a then you will not be labeled or gendered as women, and so on. And so one of the big paradoxes of facial recognition has always been that security forces and law enforcement are the biggest vendors mm-hmm. for those technologies. That because of racial bias within the criminal justice system and also within community policing they are most likely to be used to make these life-changing decisions for black people so the difference between being identified for a crime or not being identified has a huge impact on somebody's life so much of the work i've done has been in that area of the ways in which ai technology because of the way that it's been developed in this country actually reinforces this idea that black people are criminals, not because it thinks that, but because it misidentifies potential defendants.
0: She's Mutale Mkande. She is an expert on race and technology. I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be with us.
3: Thank you so much. And just I hope everybody is safe and well and their families are blessed because these are turbulent times.
0: My next guest is Dr. Kathleen Carley. She's a professor at Carnegie Mellon in the School of Computer Science Institute for Software Research and the director for the Center for Informed Democracy and Social Cybersecurity. Dr. Carley, thanks for being with me. It's my pleasure. So you released some research a couple weeks ago that showed that half of the Twitter accounts calling for reopening America during the pandemic were bots. Are bots easy for the average person to spot?
5: No, not really. Sometimes you can see them because they will say exactly the same thing every time they talk or because they use typos in their names or use uh, a lot of typos in their speech. But a lot of times bots look just like human beings.
0: Now how does your team determine if an account's a bot?
5: We use what are called machine learning algorithms. That's a branch of artificial intelligence. And we use a supervised technique where we have trained our algorithms on lots of research that has gone before us that have said these things are bots, these things are not and we build these algorithms to kind of statistically match huge quantities of data
0: Hmm. Mm -hmm. now what was different about the pandemic when it came to bot accounts and how they were used
5: well first off we saw a lot more bots than we had seen in previous elections or in disasters um in various disasters before so there was there was just a lot more but the other thing is that the bots were being used in slightly different ways they weren't just uh, building two groups to fight against each other they were actually some of them were being used to support uh, you might call them benevolent bots Mm. they were actually retweeting things from the world health organization or the cdc we see one that were out there like glomming into groups and just re-spreading messages of whatever that group was saying.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: But we also saw ones working around state-sponsored media and spreading their message out to the gr- to the world. So.
0: How can people be sure that, that what they're seeing isn't misinformation?
5: So misinformation, especially around COVID-19 and around many elections, usually takes the form of more extreme statements, such as uh, talking about COVID-19 as being a bioweapon, or talking about countries dumping bodies into the ocean to get rid of the evidence. Mm. So if it seems really extreme, it's probably misinformation. Okay. Another thing that is look at where, what the source of the information is. So the bots around what are called the dark or black websites, those are websites that are spreading disinformation, try to look like news agencies but don't have credible um, editorial processes. Mm -hmm. So if you see things with typos in the labels or if you see things that sound very extreme or that seem kind of funny but weird. You know, chances are those aren't real.
0: Now, talk to me about the dangers that these kind of efforts present. Like, what are the real world consequences of these bots, particularly the ones that go to spread misinformation and really um, add to some of the derision and division that's happening here in society?
5: Well, there's several different dangers. One is they can actually, like in the case of COVID-19, be re-spreading cures that do not work. Mm. Right, so we saw bots spreading things like "drink Corona beer and you will be cured." Yeah. Now, on the one hand, that's funny, but on the other hand, you know, if people thought it, they would not be cured. Mm -hmm. So, one thing is, it can lead you to take actions such as uh, drinking bleach, for example, that you think is going to help you that won't. So, it can actually be very physically dangerous. The second thing that bots can do is they can increase divides among groups. They will build up one group in antagonism toward another group. Mm. And once they build up those groups, they will start sending happy messages to one and dismay messages to the other and make the group start fighting more. Mm. So they can actually build up polarization Mm -hmm. in groups. And the third thing they can do is they can, the third thing they've been used to do is to actually, Spread information that is intended to um, not just wreak havoc, but to denigrate certain groups or, or that are attacks on certain groups. So, for example, uh, bots were used to spread information such as if you are a person of color, you cannot get COVID-19
0: looks like we're going to have to have intense scrutiny on our own as citizens we have to scrutinize all of the media we get particularly that that comes in social media
5: absolutely and as citizens we have to actually be much more uh, attentive to what we're reading and think about it critically and if we think that it sounds like too good to be true or too crazy to be true we should not pass it on And if we know something is false, even if we think it's
0: funny, we should not repeat it. Okay, and that's those are the rules. Those are the rules that we're going to have to go by in the future. I want to thank you again so much for being with me. She is Dr. Kathleen Carley, professor at Carnegie Mellon University and the School of Computer Science Institute for Software Research and the director for the Center for Informed Democracy and Social Cybersecurity. I really appreciate it, Dr. Carley. Thank you. It
5: was a delight to talk to you.
0: My next guest is Lazarus Letcher, an artist activist here in Albuquerque. Lazarus, thanks for being with me. How are you?
6: I am doing. Thanks for having me.
0: I want to talk to you about something specific. I've seen a lot of posts on social media, video of Ahmaud Arbery being attacked, people who posted video of George Floyd being murdered. And I've seen a lot of people, particularly African Americans, really ask their friends and the people within their social media network, do not share these images as it is creating trauma within me. I don't want to see them. While it did expose these horrific events and got them into people's consciousness, Talk to me about the negative effects of sharing such information and footage.
6: Yeah, I am not a fan of people sharing images of black bodies dying or being hurt. It just reminds me a lot of lynching postcards that people used to send around in the early 20th century. Like the extrajudicial executions of black men and women and children, you know, were family affairs. People would have picnics under hanging bodies. And then the postcards of those images were prized tokens. And it's just this extremely dehumanizing thing where our bodies become hashtags and you just share the image of our final moments. Like I've never seen a video of a white person being murdered on my Facebook, but I, you know, I watched Colando Castile bleed out, the George Floyd video played automatically on my Facebook, I watched Ahmaud Aubrey's last steps of his run and it's just, it's traumatizing and I don't need to see people that look like me get murdered to know that it happens. Yeah.
0: And it's this mode of people think they're helping, but it is causing pain within folks. And we're seeing social media being a huge part of the Black Lives Matter movement. So let's pivot a little bit. Tell me about like the impact of social media and how people are using that to really try to build community for the movement.
6: In my circle, it's really integral for black trans folks to mobilize and get the word out. We lost a trans man two weeks ago, two days after George Floyd was murdered, Tony McDade was shot and killed by the Tallahassee PD. And I only saw news about it for the first few days on social media. And that's often how we get the word out that trans people have been murdered. Like in the last 24 hours, we've lost two more black trans sisters to transphobic violence. And I'm not seeing these stories on mainstream news. I'm seeing them kind of, you know, the trans grapevine, which is social media. As far as mobilizing goes, I think it's a bit of a double edged sword. You can search Black Lives Matter events in your town, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're organized by Black Lives Matter. Anyone can say that they're a Black Lives Matter event. You know, I've seen a few pop up in town that were by maybe well meaning white people or maybe by white supremacists that wanted to incite something. And so I encourage people to always do their research for events, too.
0: And we've had instances of people arguing on social media. People are calling a lot of folks out. Talk to me about that and like how activists and organizers are trying to attempt to bring a cord for people who seem to be on the same side, but are having these very public disagreements.
6: Yeah that is so tricksy. And is the thing of social media that I hate. I mean, I think it goes way back in black culture of like, don't fight in front of white people kind of thing. Like don't let them see our dirty laundry and social media kind of allows that to happen. And, you know, I'm a big believer in calling people in and believing in their best intentions. Like, hey, you posted this thing. I don't know if you know that this article actually isn't factual or that this event actually isn't led by black people. Like I'd appreciate if you take it down. Like that's the approach I tend to go to, like sending someone a private message first. But sometimes like, if the misinformation gets spread super far and wide, you have to take a public route with it.
0: Where is the forum for people to air the dirty laundry?
6: I can't think of anywhere but social media, unfortunately. And I think it is important for folks to, like question who they're following and why like i'm seeing a lot more people beginning to question sean king's leadership and like that's one of the points i want to bring up too is so often i feel like it's black women that are getting attacked and who are doing so much work that is being overlooked in this movement and people forget that the original black lives matter hashtag was started by three women two of them queer and so often the voices that were parroting about black lives matter are these black cisgender straight men that don't care if anyone but black cisgender straight men are murdered
0: Are you saying that people are kind of only about it for their own expressed interests or something that they can directly relate to?
6: Oh, that's tricksy. You know, I want to believe best intentions of folks. And I think it's hard to see beyond your experience. And I think black liberation sometimes has been like the trickle down justice approach, you know, like, okay, we'll get black men free first, then we'll move on to women, then we'll tackle the trans and queer community. But like, wait your turn, liberation does not work. If we center the black trans women that are disproportionately facing violence, even at black lives matter protests, everyone benefits.
0: Do you have any tips for people who are really avidly going to social media right now for their information?
6: Yes, I'd say on social media and in the streets, follow black women, follow black fans, follow black queers, follow the black trans community, because those that are at multiple matrices of oppression are the ones that are going to know what's up question who you're following and why, like, are you getting most of your news about Black Lives Matter from mainstream sources that are written by white authors who actually weren't there in person? I'd also say if you're attending protests and you are not black or indigenous or a person of color to be like really careful about why you're taking pictures and where you're sharing those images Are those to build clout Are those to raise awareness and like please censor faces in them. I think it was around six activists after the Ferguson uprising died mysteriously, either suicide from the mental illness that derive from surviving white supremacy and like having their faces shared so much or murders like we still don't know. Blur faces. If you're a car protest, blur license plates. we got to protect each other above all.
0: Okay. Okay. Thank you very much for being on the show, sharing your insight. Lazarus Letcher, artist and activist here in Albuquerque. Thanks again, Laz.
6: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Looking at my iPhone, it's about that time to turn it off. No, actually, it's about that time for resources. Find a full list of the resources we talk about on each episode and opportunities to donate or help online at bit.ly ynmghub. Discover more about David Carroll and the work he's doing. Head to dave.parsons.edu. Be sure to check out The Great Hack. It's on Netflix. You will not be sorry that you watched it. Learn more about Mutale and Conde. Head to mutale.tech. That's M U T A L E tech. To check out Kathleen Carley and her work, find the link on the post for this episode at kunm.org. Head to Own Your Data, an organization that aims to democratize digital intelligence at ownyourdata.foundation. And head to this show's post at KUNM.org to find a guide on protecting your privacy online. The link will send you right there. Next week, we're diving into the special legislative session where lawmakers are also considering some police reforms. Our coverage starts Wednesday at 7 p.m. Hear us now on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays on KUNM's Airwaves at 7 p.m. As always, you can find the show on KUNM.org or subscribe anywhere, anywhere you get your podcasts. Your New Mexico Government is a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage is provided in part by the Thornburg Foundation, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, the New Mexico Local News Fund, and KUNM listeners like you. Your New Mexico Government is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco, theme music, by Pope Yes Yes Y'all. It's produced by yours truly. Thanks to the dynamic duo of Nash Jones and Ty Bannerman for putting in the editing work again. Really appreciate it. I'm Khalil Ecolona. For everyone here at your New Mexico government, thanks for listening and have a great weekend.